The sermon text this morning is Psalm 6, verses 1 through 10. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Oh, before we start, I should probably let you know how I, how I got up here this Sunday. So uh, Tom's out of town. The guy who was supposed to preach um, got sick. And then uh, midweek, I get a call, and I was asked to preach, and I accepted. So it's kind of like a, a third-string quarterback, right? Um, <laughs> And for those of you who follow football, you know what happens when a third-string quarterback comes in the game, right? Lament. Uh, <laughs> lots of it, right? Players, fans, coaches, all lamenting, all crying out to God um, out of the distress of their, their soul. Uh, anyway, I say that in kind of a tug-in-cheek, but I think it actually fits well uh, with the Psalms we've been covering, with this Psalm uh, in particular, that we're going to cover um, Psalm 6. So Psalm 6 uh, has arguably been called a penitential psalm. Uh, One of the things you don't specifically see is the admission of guilt, though you can certainly imply it uh, in this passage. Uh, What we do see, though, is lament. So most commentators, most scholars agree that this um, psalm displays lament, David's lament, um, over his prolonged anguish, the anguish of his soul. So here we see him give vent to his pain, to the state in which he's living. To be honest, like other psalms, it's not pretty. It's not nice, uh, but it is filled with David's raw emotion. It's the kind that people exhibit when they're gripped by grief, despair, and they have nowhere to turn but God. So they lament in their despair and they cry out to him for hope. So as we look at this passage, we will see quite a bit of lament, quite a bit of despair over the anguish of David's soul. However, what we're also going to see is once we get to verse 8, there's going to be this pivot where David now moves and hopes. He hopes that God will act, and he knows that God will act on his behalf. In fact, in the passage, he appeals to God's uh, covenant faithfulness, his loyal love, which he's displayed to deliver his people throughout history in places like Egypt, during the time of the judges, uh, when God over and over again saved his people from their anguish, from their deliverance. He expects, as one of God's people, he hopes, he trusts that God will deliver him as well. And as we also look at this passage, we have to remember that this passage, um, yes, it has a certain historical context, we're going to focus on that, but it also appears in the larger Christian canon, right? It has a place in the scriptures, which fits into this overarching story, God's redemptive story of scripture. 
all right? Which shows us how the pain and the hope that we see here in Psalm 6 prepares us for what we'll celebrate in a few weeks, Easter, all right? How pain ultimately gives hope, gives way to the hope of resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the picture uh, of our own resurrection and the restoration of all things, all right? Let's go ahead and take a look at the passage. As we get right in, the first five passages, they deal with David's petition. So he's petitioning God. He's asking him over and over and over again, about five times for deliverance. And immediately in verse one, he starts and he asks God not to rebuke him in his anger or discipline him in his in his wrath. All right. So again, there's no you can imply admission of sin or guilt here, but most commentators don't want to speculate, and neither will I. What I will argue is there's a whole lot of lament. There is a whole lot of pain because of his state of anguish in which he's in. And he asked God not to discipline him. Just some further clarification as to what this discipline that David refers to is. If you think of Proverbs 3.12, discipline has a very specific purpose um, in God's plan. Often it is God's severe mercy on us. When we go through trials, when we go through times of difficulty, it's often to produce something good in us, to teach us, to make us more holy, to make us more like God. Now, it doesn't mean every time we go through pain or difficult circumstances that this is the case. Sometimes we go through difficult circumstances because of our own sin, all right? But in this case, David is is suffering, all right? And the kind of suffering David is going through is for discipline. It's meant to produce something good, much like oftentimes when we suffer, what we go through, though painful, though difficult, though we cry out to God, it's meant to mature us. It's meant to make us more godly. As difficult as it is, it has a purpose. It is for discipline, all right? We often think of that in a negative sense, but in the economy of God's plan, it's actually beneficial, it matures us to be more like God himself. But as we read the Psalm, we see that David's had enough, right? He's feared, he's endured this for far too long. He's suffering, he's crying out, he's in anguish. He's suffering so much he feels like he's about to pass from the land of the living over to the land of the dead. So whatever David is going through, exactly what it is, he doesn't really describe it, but he kind of feels like his life is about to come to an end. He's had just about enough. And we see these raw emotions uh, develop further in verses two through three as he cries out to God. He asks God to be gracious to him for he's languishing. He asks God to heal him for his bones are troubled. He says his soul is troubled. To grasp exactly what David is going through here, whatever it is, it's so intense that he feels it throughout his body, it's a trial so severe that he just can't escape it. There's no way to get away from it. There's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to hide. It's just consuming him, all right? So just imagine with me for a moment, a trial, an anguish so severe that it affects your entire body, your entire soul. It's prolonged, you can't escape it. There's nowhere you can go in your mind to conceal yourself from, you can't block it out. You can't compartmentalize it. It consumes your thoughts, your emotions, your life. All right, that's what David's going through. All right, he's been going through it so long as many of us sometimes suffer similar trials that just 
consume us and we just lament out to God. But he asks, how long, Lord? So in layman's terms, when are you going to make it stop? All right. When is the pain of this trial finally going to come to an end? All right. Because he just wants it to stop. All right. It's a fair question, right? He feels like he suffered long enough, right? How long is he going to continue to suffer? How long, oh Lord? A question I think some of us resonate with when we go through trials, when we go through difficulties. How long, Lord, am I going to continue to languish in this state? I don't know about you, but trials kind of are like this in my life. Um, I'm just kind of going along. I'm living life, you know, the way I think life is supposed to normally uh, be. Everything's supposed to be great. Nothing is supposed to be bad. Everything's supposed to be normal. All of a sudden, bam, I just walk right into it. Or sometimes I realize weeks in, wow, I am really struggling right now. And the more I think about it, the more I cry out to God, it just doesn't seem to subside. I try everything in my power. When we go through it, we try sometimes everything in our power, but God doesn't, continue, God doesn't take it away. It almost pounds away mercilessly. These thoughts, these difficulties, they just don't go away. We find ourselves in this state of anguish uh, and difficulty where our souls are just suffering. Our entire, we're so weary that our entire bodies uh, are suffering. We're just all consumed with the pain and anguish that we're going through. It could be the news of a tumor. It could be depression. Uh, it could be spouse walks out. It could be the news of uh, infertility, a child who departs from the faith, paralyzing thoughts of fear or guilt that we can't really rationalize. We can't control them. They're just there and they're with us and we just can't get out of it. Whatever it is, it's different for all of us. It starts and it just does not let up. And you ask God to make it go away, to heal your loved one, to solve your loneliness, to make things right, and he doesn't. For whatever reason, you cry out and it just continues unabated. It could take weeks, months, sometimes years, right? but the pain just continues, just like David's pain that we see in this passage. When I look at this, I mean, I could definitely put myself in, in David's shoes. I can, I can picture what he's experiencing um, in times of pain where it just doesn't go away. Everything I do, everything I try to fix it, it's, it's futile, the pain continues. It just gnaws at me day after day after day. I ask God to make it go away, but he doesn't, right? At least not immediately. It takes some time, all right? Now, I know sometimes we feel like we have to smile uh, and grunt and bear it uh, when we're struggling, um, because if you happen to struggle, that just means that, well, you're not spiritual, right? That's not true. That's not what we see here in this passage. Uh, I'm not saying that we're to be like Eeyore and always walk around like there's something wrong with us. Um, I think we should seek to find joy in our circumstances. However, life is real, and we're living in a sinful world, and sometimes life is really hard, and difficult things hit us, and we struggle. David admits us. David admits this, and so can we, right? There's nothing unspiritual about it, right? Sometimes life is so difficult that all you can do is cry out to God and ask, how long, Lord? How long, all right? 
which is actually a pretty common question throughout the Psalms. When we ask these kinds of questions, right, we're not testing God, we're not sinning. In fact, Tim Keller gives us a good way to think uh, about this kind of lament uh, during difficult times. Um, he says, God is very patient with us when we are desperate. Pour out your soul out to him. It's simple, but true. God is patient with us. All right? As we see here in David, uh, as he cries out, we too can cry out as well when we feel like we're just languishing. All right? We can ask, <laughs> how long? How long is this anguish, this pain, this trial going to continue? All right? But as we keep suffering and we ask, we keep ask, ask the question, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Sometimes our minds are left to, to wonder. So what is God doing as time keeps going by and my pain, like David's, is just unabated? Right? Why doesn't he just act, right? Just do something, God, right? Deliver me. But it continues. For me, um, honestly, if I had my choice, I like my trials short and sweet. Just do it and get it over with, kind of like, um, like, a, like in the movie Tommy Boy. It's a two-by-four right to the face, right? Just quick and hard. Uh, it's over. Um, there's some pain, a little bit of bruising, but after a couple weeks, um, it goes away. I can think of the movie right now, right? Not so much here or here, but right here. Um, that's kind of the way I wish my trials would happen. Uh, but honestly, not so much. Uh, it seems to, to last and last and last weeks, days. Uh, in some cases, uh, it's lasted years. All right. But again, when this happens, when we struggle for a while, again, we wonder why God does not intervene. Um, when we have such thoughts, um, it's important to remember verse 1 and the idea of, of discipline. That is, don't think of it negatively, but think of, of enduring trials, enduring suffering for the purpose of God shaping us, for the purpose of making us more holy. And what's often so difficult for us is that uh, our timing is not his timing. And that shaping that molding, that process of holiness occurs according to his own timing. What may seem so unmerciful to us um, may actually be his severe mercy towards us. Um, now I know this is not necessarily uh, comforting, especially as we're, we're in trials and we're, we hear that yes, God does uh, have a purpose uh, for what we're going, we're going through, but again, we want it to come to an end Right now, we want the pain, the turmoil, the difficulty to come to an end, right? And we're not alone, right? We see this here in, in this passage with David, right? David feels he's enduring so much difficulty that he's being taken to the point of death almost, that he's being close to passing from the land of the living to the land of the dead, right? It's just too much. He doesn't want it anymore, right? So who can blame him? Uh, so he pleads with God. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. But notice David's, David's plea in this passage uh, is, a, is in accordance with God's steadfast love. To further unpack uh, what this steadfast love 
means, it actually refers to, in a better sense, to see this as God's faithful love. Faithful love to those who are in covenant with him. A faithful love we see exemplified in the way God has been faithful to deliver his people when they cry out to him. And when he delivers his people, what people get to see is the righteous, merciful character of God. And then people in turn are drawn because of his character, because of his salvation of his people, are drawn to worship him. It's on this basis, this covenantal relationship, that David appeals to God for mercy. And this actually helps us make good sense of the following verse, which can be rather uh, confusing, where David says um, here in verse 5, in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you Praise, right? There's a whole lot we can say about death and Sheol, but I'm just going to get to the point um, and not belabor it. What David's saying is that if he perishes, then his life would no longer bear, bear witness to the saving character of God, God's merciful character. And if he is no longer able to praise God uh, for his graciousness, his covenant faithfulness, well, then there's just one less person to do that. But if he does, that's why he appeal to, appeals to his covenant faithfulness, then David can give testimony to the God who saves and delivers his people. Right? He does, he's not obligated to, but if he does, and David appeals to that, then David in turn can give testimony that God can receive praise and that people might be drawn to worship this God who saves and delivers his people back from the pit, from even death itself. Right? But this is not just for David, right? Followers of Jesus are also members of the covenant, right? We too are God's people. We are children of Abraham, as Paul would say. Thus, in our struggles, we can deliver God. We can't, no, no. We can't ask God for, for deliverance from our pain, from our turmoil. However prolonged, all right, we can ask God, the God who delivers us, the God who restores our life. But again, it doesn't mean like that God is a magic genie. It doesn't mean every time we cry out to God, he's going to save us from whatever it is that we are struggling with or enduring in the moment, right? We call on him, but God has his purposes. And sometimes those purposes are prolonged and he sees fit not to deliver us for a time. But even if he chooses not to act now, as we'll look forward to in the rest of this psalm, in light of what the rest of scripture teaches, he is still deserving of our trust because God will act he will act in his own timing. If not now, he will act at the end of history to deliver us, to save us from sin, death, and the curse once and for all. He will save us as he saved Jesus from the grave. He will give us a resurrection. So as we think about David's pleas, we now transition to verses six through seven. And here, the psalmist David continues to give us a raw description uh, of his current state. It just kind of keeps going over and over and over again. It makes sense, right? David's lamenting. He's moaning over the state of his life, uh, his soul. He says, 
uh, in these verses, in 6 through 7, he says he's weary with moaning. He's flooding his bed with tears every night. He's drenching his couch with weeping and wasting away because of grief. Right? He's being honest about his condition. He's in the pit of despair. All right? See, a couple of things here. Um, he says he's, he's moaning. Um, you know, sometimes we go through pain, uh, difficulties, trials so severe, there's simply, there are no words. Right? We just, we can't describe them. Um, we just reach from the pit of our stomachs and we just, we moan. Um, it's a pain we see in Job. It's a pain we see here in David. It's a pain that's hard to describe to other people. It's hard to get people to understand and we just, we moan. We moan out to God, all right? But God hears us. Sometimes we spend evening, evenings in tears, just like David. It says David drenches his couch with tears. During periods of suffering, sometimes we spent countless hours in tears, crying and lamenting. It's almost like we can't stop. Once the floodgates open, it just starts and it continues over and over and over again, day after day, as we weep over sickness, weep over failure, we weep over, over brokenness as David weeps. There's no one-size-all-fits description here for what kind of pain this weeping is tied to, um, but when it happens, you know it. Right? When pain hits us, the kind of pain that's just so uncontrollable sometimes that won't go away, we weep, and our lives are filled with just hours, days on end, with tears and lament, just like the psalmist. And unfortunately, sometimes to make matters worse, um, we, seek it, we seek help from people, um, or sometimes we give this kind of help for, for, to people, and the kind of help that we give or the kind of help that we receive, it, it doesn't make things better. It only, take, only makes things worse sometimes because where the help we receive or the help that we give takes people's eyes, takes our eyes sometimes off the God who is the only person who gives us any hope uh, for deliverance in times of difficulty. And when you think of that, it actually makes sense of what David is saying in verse seven, how he describes his foes. He says his foes cause his eye to grow weak. When you think of what the function of of the eye, right? The eye in scripture, it's, it looks upon God, right? It expects God to, to act um, on someone's behalf and hopeful expectation because honestly in pain and suffering, it's, it's all we have, right? God is all we have, which makes you think, um, maybe that's one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, um, that God allows us to go through pain and suffering, that we might realize our only hope and dependence is completely on God alone. So with that, we can see um, perhaps what David is going through here. Right, these foes are comparable to Job's friends who give him uh, bad advice uh, about why he's suffering, that it's his own fault. And sometimes, honestly, our suffering is our own fault. It's because of our own sin. All right? But David here doesn't admit that. But their advice here actually causes his eye, his hope to grow Dim, which is not what godly counsel, which you receive or, 
or give should be during times of difficulty. Surely you deal with the pain, but as we deal with the pain, um, we're to gently push others to see their hope in God as David will display his hope in God in this passage. But again, we want to seek help, right? During difficulty, we're, we're not lone rangers, right? We're not, we're not meant to, to walk around the forest like Rambo with a knife by himself, just chopping down bushes and, uh, and trees. Um, we're not self-sufficient. That's why we have a body of believers uh, with trusted pastors, elders, and other leaders who we can go to in times of struggling. When we do struggle, all right, hopefully people, hopefully we as well, will point others to the God who has a purpose for our suffering, all right? The God who will see us through no matter how difficult things may be. It may not happen when we'd like, as fast as we'd like. It may take some time uh, for it to take its course, but we can trust that God will act, right? Because our only hope for deliverance is in God. And just to be honest, completely, um, the times that God has allowed me to suffer um, are the times in which I've been forced totally to just trust upon him, right? It's easy to trust in how good you are at something um, or just go about life without even thinking about God. And all of a sudden, a trial hits and it just, just knocks you down and you stay down. And you're forced to think that no matter what you do, at least in my experience, I do almost everything I can to get myself out of it. Every rational way to deal with the situation I try, and I just completely fail. So I'm left only to see my complete hope and trust in God. He's all I have. I'm completely dependent upon him. Nothing else that I can do can deliver me. My hope is only in God. And maybe... It's not, all, not always the case for some of you, maybe for some of you, but maybe for some of you, this is the case. Um, maybe some of us are too self-sufficient. Maybe we are too proud. So God allows us to suffer so that we realize that we depend on him, that he is our only hope. You know, a um, former pastor of mine uh, used to take uh, 25 to 30 um, guys, right out of college, fresh out of college. Um, it was a discipleship program that he would do. Once a year, he would take 25 to 30 guys, and we'd all go to, uh, if he'd invite you, uh, or if you solicited, he, he accepted, uh, you'd move to Denton, Texas. And I could think of a whole lot nicer places uh, than Denton, Texas. Uh, but anyway, so I did the program one year, uh, many moons ago, uh, actually about 17 years now, and I was in a group of about 25 um, or 30 guys right out of college, all of whom wanted to go into ministry. We would wake up at, at 6 a.m. We'd be in class by like 6.30 or 7, and we, for a couple hours we'd go through uh, the Bible. Tom would give us a good uh, overall picture uh, of Scripture. We'd go through systematic theology. We'd go through church history. Some of us went to seminary. Others went to uh, parachurch ministries or, uh, or local church ministry. But to be honest, as with many young people, um, as I look back now, I can see this, you know, we were young, you know, so we thought we were smart. We thought we were talented. Uh, we were so, we were so naive, right? Uh, like, 
many young people are as I was. Um, I had no idea. We, thought, we all thought we were, we were big stuff. Um, but to, Tom could always see right through us, right? Tom knew from his years of experience as a pastor, uh, going to seminary himself. I mean, Tom could see, he could see right through all of us. And sometimes he would just smile and he had these zingers for us. And other times he had these deep words uh, of wisdom. Uh, I recall one time Tom said something uh, like this. He was teaching and he just stops. And he says, you know what? You guys are too smart. You're too big. You're too talented. Um, before God uses you, he's got to break you. He's got to let you suffer. It's the only way that you guys will ever be any good for ministry. And you know what? He was right. Um, because suffering helps us see that our dependence is only on God. But of course, back then I thought, you know, no way, I'm good. I mean, I don't need that stuff. I'll learn right here in class everything uh, I have to learn. Um, but apparently God did not feel the same way. Um, as I look back at my life, I realize how much I've actually learned through suffering and difficulty. And it's this, my dependence on God, that my hope is only in him. And I know we have seminarians here, and I feel like um, every semester we have more and more, and just, it's important that you know stuff, right? Learning is important. Otherwise, I'd be out of a job uh, if learning stuff wasn't important, right? Um, however, there's just some things that you can't learn from books, right? You hear, you hear things like humility uh, in class. You hear things about the importance of, of suffering and God's sovereignty, um, but unless you go through it, you just, you really don't know. Because it's during those times, times of suffering, that God really does teach us that we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, we're not talented enough, that we need him, that we depend on him, that he is our only hope and no one else. And as we see that in this passage that David cries out to God because he is our, our only hope. We do see here a pivot, right? Where we now see that hope materialize. We see that hope verbalized as David goes from suffering to expressing a suffering and despair to now hope. He knows there's no way he can get himself out of the pit that he's in because his only hope is that God will act. And in verse eight, he says, he confesses that he is weeping, right? But God has heard his plea. He accepts his prayer, right? You see that in verse nine. God has heard his plea. He accepts his prayer. That means that he knows God has heard him. He knows that God will act and God will deliver him, that God will not leave him for dead, that God will act, if not now, in his own timing because he's appealed to the God who is faithful to his people. So no matter how difficult, no matter how prolonged, God will deliver us like David from our difficulties, right? It may be hard. It is hard, right? And sometimes it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but in our difficulties and our suffering, our only hope is in God. David admits that, right? David sees that our deliverance comes only 
from God, and he knows that God has heard his plea. Just like when we cry out, we know that God hears us. All right? He knows that despite all of his enemies, all of his foes who tell him otherwise, all right? that God is his only hope. So we see in this psalm, we see that David's soul is anguishing, all right, beyond the point of despair. So he cries out to God for deliverance, right? He asks God, how long? How long is this going to last? And though God does not deliver him right away, his hope is in the covenant-keeping God, who when his purposes are fulfilled, will bring him back from the point of death, whatever that is. Psalm 6 then functions as a model for how, how we too should learn to deal with suffering, how we too should hope in God because he is our only hope. But to be honest, Psalm 6 is more than just a model for us. It's that, but it's also so much more. We have to realize that the same God who speaks through David is also the same God who speaks through other authors throughout the scriptures to narrate a coherent story which culminates in a restoration and a resurrection of all things. When we think about scripture this way, we can see how David's words in Psalm 6 anticipate the words of Jesus, David's son in the garden of Gethsemane as he too is in tears and anguish over the state of his soul and what's still to come in Matthew 26. All right? In fact, Jesus' petition sounds remarkably like David's. All right? I'll read to you a couple of lines to give you uh, the connection here. In verse 37, um, as Jesus is in anguish over what he's suffering, knowing he is suffering, and knowing he will still suffer on a wooden cross, he says, he is sorrowful and troubled. All right? We see sorrow and trouble also in David's psalm. Then in verse 38, Jesus explicitly says, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. In Psalm 6, we see David sorrowful even to the point where he feels like he's going to die, that he's near the pit of death itself. In other words, Jesus is in deep agony in trial. He knows how difficult this anguish is, and he knows what he is yet to endure, a wooden cross. And then much like David, he also petitions God. Right? Three times he asks him for help that God might deliver him from this cup of suffering, that it might pass from him. David does something similar. David asks God, please make it stop. Please deliver me. All right. And after each time that Jesus cries out to God this way, all right, each time he also entrusts himself to God, that God's will be done, the Father's will be done, as David entrusts himself to God, knowing that God will deliver him. All right? In Jesus' case, he knows the very good purpose in his suffering, just, for, just like we have purposes in our suffering, um, and David had purposes in his suffering. In Jesus' case, the purpose of his suffering is that his death for sin, our sin, would give way to a resurrection from the dead. And this resurrection, as Paul would say, is the first fruits of a new creation. That is, through Jesus' resurrection, through his pain, his death, his suffering, and his resurrection, this would be 
a picture or the guarantee of our own resurrection from the grave and ultimately the restoration of all things. Jesus' resurrection all right, is the first fruits of a new creation. When we read David's words in Psalm 6 as anticipating Matthew's words and Matthew 26, Jesus' words, we see the hope to which the scriptures point, right? It's the hope of Easter, what we're getting ready to celebrate here in a few weeks, and that's the resurrection of Jesus, which guarantees that our suffering in the present will not last forever. One day, we will be delivered from all the effects of sin and death when we are raised and the entire creation is restored. Because what we are looking for is, it's not a disembodied state uh, away from places and stuff, right? God created stuff. He created matter. He created this world. And one day, and he created us as well. And one day he's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it. Um, we go through suffering. We go through pain, just like the creation. Think of, of Romans 8. But our suffering now will one day give way to a resurrection, like Jesus' resurrection. Heaven is an intermediary place as we await the resurrection of our bodies and the restoration of all things. All right, because we are waiting, like Paul, to attain the resurrection of the dead. All right? When we, along with the entire creation that God has made, will one day be made whole. When there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more anguish, no more disease, no more suffering, no more trials. All right? When our faith becomes sight, when we are face to face with the God who suffered for our sins and who rose from the dead on our behalf, the God who has made all things new, our very King. You know, some time ago, um, my interest was piqued to a, to a little Irish band called U2. Uh, you may have heard of them. Um, you know, as I listened to their music, actually a seminary professor back in the day attuned me to him. Um, it's a guy you would think would never, never listen to, to U2 or, or Bono. Um, but as I began listening, I noticed something pretty deep uh, in their music, that there are these, these themes of, of biblical lament and also biblical hope uh, woven uh, throughout their, their music. And often this, this lament is over suffering and over um, injustice. And I listened to one particular song called uh, 40, um, where the lead singer um, Bono keeps singing the question. The question which David asks here and other Psalms ask um, as well. Um, how long to sing this song, right? How long? How long to continue asking when, until when? How long, Lord? And as I listened to it, um, something hit me. Um, that the repetition of this question, how long, that we hear here in David, we hear uh, in U2's song, it reminds us really um, of all the times we'll have to say it in our own lives, right? How long, Lord? How long am I gonna suffer? Um, because the reality is we're living in a cursed world for now. And though God delivers us temporarily, we're gonna go through times where we're just, we're back in it and we're suffering again. And again, we're gonna ask, how long? But there's gonna come a day when we'll never ask the question ever again, how long? Because God will act one last time to deliver us from suffering and death. When he liberates us from the curse, 
when he raises us from the grave just like he raised his son, Jesus. Our hope is only in God. When we look to him and only him, when we trust that as he raised Jesus, so will he raise us as well, uh, we truly see the one in whom our hope lies, the one who will once for all, if not now, certainly finally and fully at the end of history, raise us from the grave, delivering us from all sin, death, pain, and suffering. He truly is our only hope. Let's take a moment just to, just to think um, and just ask God to uh, orient our minds that whether we are going through suffering now uh, or we will go through it sometime in the future, that our hope might be in him, that he is our only hope for deliverance, that our trust might be firmly in him, knowing that whether he acts now, whether he delays, ultimately he will deliver us finally and fully when he raises us from the grave as he raised Jesus.